Whether you like history or not, if you care about bravery, wisdom, passion, larger-than-life characters, and some of the most emotionally intense moments in the human experience, you have come to the right place. Daniele Bolelli is a university history professor, writer, and martial artist, and he shall be your guide in a journey to the place where history and epic collide. Welcome to episode 46 of History on Fire. In case you missed out on the announcement last time at the end of the podcast, um, I'm just going to tell you a couple of things right now before we get into the episodes. History on Fire starting in April is going to switch to a new platform, Luminary. Most of the episodes are going to go exclusively on that platform. You're not going to be able to find them anywhere else. Luminary is going to operate on a subscription basis, so you can check out all the details. I'll put a link in the episode notes. But basically, to give you the quick version, it's going to be $8 a month for not just my podcast, but many, many other podcasts that are only going to be available through Luminary. Now, if you decide to follow me there, great. Very sweet of you. Thank you so much for supporting. If you decide you don't, feel like doing such a thing, well, there's still going to be two episodes per year that will be released on all the platforms from iTunes, Teacher, and everything else. So in case you decide not to stick around for the Luminary deal, well, then I guess we'll see you in six months. You can stay subscribed wherever it is they are subscribed, and you'll see new episodes popping out every about six months or so. If, on the other hand, you decide to jump on with Luminary, there's going to be, in addition to those two free episodes for everybody, there's going to be 13 more episodes that will be available. In any case, having said that, let me say a couple of things about the sweet folks sponsoring this episode. I want to say a big thank you to Team Evolve Recruitment. These guys are fans of the podcast, and they have been sweet enough to sponsor this episode and the next one. Team Evolve is a nationwide recruiting team located in Southern California that focuses on building up startups in various industries, and they have clients working on bleeding-edge technology in the fields of cybersecurity, renewable energy, autonomous vehicles, advanced robotics, deep and machine learning, virtual reality, and much more. They have clients and candidates all over the US and Canada. So wherever you are in the Northern Hemisphere, they have elite candidates and companies you want to see. Whether you are a startup or a talented engineer or a recruiter looking to join a rapidly growing team of recruitment professionals, if you're looking for a personal touch to show you your next opportunity or an elite eye in your next hire, reach out to the team at www.teamevolving.com. Again, that's teamevolving.com. A funny story about the next sponsor I want to mention. Uh, the sponsor is Magellan TV, 
And these guys are a new type of documentary streaming provider. So they bring uh, some of the best documentaries from around the globe on one service. Now, here is where the story gets weird. Is I got this request and I checked them out and they look very legit. So I was like, yeah, sure, I can. we can set up a sponsorship. But then, of course, I started looking really deep into it and I started watching the documentaries. And I'm so short on time right now. I'm trying to keep up with the release schedule, make sure I get all my research done and everything. But once I started looking at the documentaries they have, needless to say, I got lost in a black hole of watching documentary after documentary because they have so much incredible stuff. They have, well, needless to say, since it catches my interest, a very wide range of history documentaries available. I watch a whole bunch about Queen Elizabeth, fascinating figure, by the way, who gave me some ideas for future episodes. I watch about Tokugawa Japan and what led to the creation of the Tokugawa dynasty. I watch, there's so much good stuff and there's a lot more that I want to check out. They're not just about history, they also have nature documentaries, science, space, you name it, lots of other things. So if you do dig documentaries, check them out. They are really good. The whole service has been built by documentary filmmakers. And I really, really dig them. I cannot recommend them enough. I know I'm going to, it's going to be a struggle to stay focused on my work and not get sidetracking watching them all because there's so much good stuff. They're now compatible with Roku, iOS, Android, a whole bunch of other things. So they have the ability to cast on some of the most popular streaming devices. You can watch anytime on your television, laptop, mobile device, you name it. So you can start your free trial today at MagellanTV.com forward slash history on fire. And seriously, trying it for free with the kind of documentaries they have. I mean, even if you decide that you don't want to sign up later on, try it for free. Just give it a shot. Try them out. It's MagellanTV.com forward slash history on fire. I also want to give a big shout out to the sponsors who have been with me since day one. Onnit.com has an insane array of products from clothing to supplements to workout gear. I use their stuff every day. If you can do me a huge favor and just check them out. And you know, if you don't find anything that's useful to your life, well, just as simple as that, don't buy it. But my guess is that you may find items that are really, really useful. Uh, Alpha Brain is their flagship supplement. It works like a charm, especially the, um, the powder version. I really like that one a lot. So with that in mind, check out their website. The link is in the episode notes. Or you can go directly and check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, onnit.com forward slash history and receive an automatic 10% discount. The coupon code HISTORY is also good at dsgear.com for all of their hemp gear from bags to clothing to martial arts uniforms and all sorts of other goodies. And while I'm at it, shout out to Never Tap Gear for sponsoring Savannah Riem, editor and resident muse and million other things for this podcast the artists who provide the images for history on fire as well and speaking of art they produce this beautiful rush guard featuring savannah's art regarding tomoe godzen the female samurai it's an insanely beautiful rush guard so if you train in jiu-jitsu or you use that kind of clothing 
you may want to check out Never Top Gear. Having said that, without further ado, let's go set history on fire. Once upon a time, to be precise in the Japan of the 1400s, lived the monk whose main passions were Zen Buddhism, sex and drinking sake. And unlike those who indulge in such pastimes in private, only to condemn them in public, in order to uphold some holier-than-thou image, the hero of our tale did not hide any of this. The result was a life that has had a huge impact on Japanese cultural history. This is part two of the adventures of Ikkyu Sojun. We left off last time with Ikkyu in his thirties, freely roaming around Japan after spending his youth in the severity of Zen monasteries, after seeing the two men who had taught him the most die, and passing on a chance to become emperor of Japan. So that was quite eventful right there, but there's a lot more to come. Rather than doing what was expected of him, which was to settle down to teach in some temple, Ikkyu chose to experience his path outside of the confines of monasteries. Interacting only with monks, while safely tucked away from the eyes and lows of daily life, held no appeal for him. He would still stop by to teach once in a while, but then he would be gone, either to hang out in the mountains on his own or mixing it up in the hustle and bustle of the cities. He loved living as a wanderer, with very few material possessions, free to socialize with anyone he felt like, male and female, rich and poor. As one of his disciples later said, Ikkyu did not distinguish between the high and low in society, and he enjoyed mingling with artisans, merchants and children. Youngsters followed him about, and birds came to eat out of his hands. Whatever possessions he received, he passed on to others. He was strict and demanding, but treated all without favoritism. This notion of not distinguishing between the high and low in society may not really strike us as particularly radical if we live in modern in the modern Western world with its democratic ideals and all. But this was a culture, the culture that EQ lived in was a culture in which everything was highly regulated. Court etiquette, for example, dictated even things like what type of a fan a man could have, I mean folding fan clearly, and how many folds could be in it. That's some serious OCD right there. In a very class-conscious feudal society like the Japan of the 1400s in which social rank was everything, EQ's rejection of the class system was more than unconventional. It was downright revolutionary. His willingness to carry on, as if social conventions and rigid class barrier did not exist, made him a popular folk hero, among those wishing they could be as free as he was. Now, this business of vicariously living through someone else's radical embracing of personal freedom always struck me as a bit odd. Because the thing we need to remember is Ikkyu's freedom was not a gift from the gods. It was a choice. And like all choices, it required prices to be paid. Prices that many of his admirers were not willing to pay. And that was that. 
in some way it kind of reminds me of something I noticed when I was a kid. I remember as a kid, I remember several visitors to my house going on and on about how lucky my father was, since he only took on jobs he liked and he had plenty of time to dedicate to raising me. And yet the same people wishing they could have my father's life usually made 10 times more money than he ever did. You know, in that sense, my father wasn't lucky. He had made a choice and he was willing to live with the consequences. The consequence sometimes included having to borrow money to make rent or inhabiting a house with a ceiling that regularly fell to pieces. You know, while other kids had video games, I would read the back covers of video games and then spend hours imagining what it would be like to play with them. And that was okay. That was the price to pay for having free time and only working when it felt like it. All the folks envying my father's freedom could have made the exact same choice if they wanted. But they had to really want it that bad. But clearly they weren't willing to pay the price, since material comfort was more important to them than the freedom they professed to admire. And I'm not judging the choice negatively, I get it. It's not fun to make your home at the edges of poverty. But it's silly to speak of luck when luck has nothing to do with it. EQ in many ways served a similar function for many of the people who knew him, as my father served for some of his acquaintances. These guys admired their uncompromising willingness to live on their own terms, but they admired it from a safe distance. Their freedom to them was an ideal to be experienced, but only vicariously experienced. EQ rejected the chasing of wealth, not because there's anything wrong with wealth in itself, not because there's some innate evil with money. That's not what he ever said. The reason why he did it is because unless you marry rich or win the lottery, wealth is something that in the best scenario is traded at the price of our time and energy. And to EQ, his time and energy was worth more than money. He would find odd jobs for a while, just enough to support himself for a bit, and then he would start his wandering again. Even though he never opened a formal school, some disciples began following him to learn Zen from him. Among them was Bokusai, who was an excellent painter who would become Ikkyu's biographer, and is one of the main sources we still have today about Ikkyu's life. Speaking of biographical details about Ikkyu's life, as mentioned in part one, Ikkyu's wanderings included some torrid love affairs with a variety of women. Some evidence exists that seem to indicate he may have fathered a couple of kids. Some sources suggest that one of Ikkyu's students named Jotei was actually his son. Um, there are all sorts of stories about how Ikkyu may have met Jotei's mother, but the reliability is kind of slim. In either case, Jotei traveled with Ikkyo for a good part of his life, and he ended up becoming a leading master in tea ceremony. There's also a poem by Ikkyo suggesting he had a daughter. In it, in this poem, Ikkyo wrote, Watching my four-year-old daughter dance, I can't break free of her. Forgetting my duties, I sleep into freedom which is adorably cute. I remember quoting this a lot when my daughter was four years old. But unfortunately, we don't know anything more 
about EQ and this relationship with his daughter. That one line, that's about it. Since we're on the topic of family relationships, EQ lost his father, the former emperor of Japan, in 1433. EQ had paid him a visit just a few days before his father's death. Perhaps as a form of apology for neglecting him for most of his life, his father gave EQ his writing equipment, you know, brushes, inkstone, all that kind of stuff, which was a sweet gift considering that EQ was recognized as the greatest calligrapher of his times. EQ, in fact, kept that writing desk that his father gave him as a memory of him. And he wrote a few poems about him, and he clearly had forgiven him. He clearly had gotten over the fact that he had definitely not been the best father to him. In the course of his nomadic existence, EQ made a frequent base at Sakai, a cosmopolitan port city famous, among other reasons, for its extensive trade network with China. Sakai was no doubt an interesting place, you know, it was populated by pirates, merchants, con artists, and all kinds of other assorted humanity. I kind of picture it as the Japanese equivalent of the bar scene in Star Wars. As a way to make ends meet, EQ began doing business with some of the merchants trading with China. You know, merchants were typically low on the social hierarchy, but as we have already established, EQ wasn't exactly hung up on hierarchy, so he didn't care and made friends with quite a few of them. Since he was a renowned, you know, I just mentioned a minute ago how he was renowned as a master calligrapher and painter, EQ used this talent to paint fans that then the merchants would sell both in Sakai and in China. Among these merchants was a young man named, uh, I'm going to take a guess on how to pronounce it because this is a long Japanese name, but is Shiro Zaimon, 100% sure that I got it wrong, but in any case... This guy came from one of the few families who had ocean-going vessels big enough to get to China, the Philippines, and the South Seas. Technically speaking, trading with China was not particularly legal. By 1435, official trade between China and Japan had nearly stopped. The Sentoku Treaty between the Emperor Yunglo of Ming China and the shogun Ashikaga Yoshinori had limited trade to only one mission per decade, and the Ashikaga shoguns had given the Zen temple of Tenryuji monopoly over this trade. So the law left the Sakai merchants out in the cold as far as their opportunities for Sino-Japanese trade. But you know, you don't become a successful sea merchant by letting things like legality stand in your way. In perfect Han Solo style, Shiro Zaimon was a smuggler. Like other Sakai merchants, he sailed illegally, often paying bribes to officials to look the other way. And the profits of this trade were so high that he and his colleagues could afford to put every port official on their paybook. You know, money goes a long way and uh, they definitely used it wisely. Now, the two of them, this uh, smuggler, merchant, and DQ, got along famously, with the former becoming the latter student 
and having such a soft spot for his Zen teacher that he often paid his bills and took care of him. EQ thankfully gave him the Buddhist name Owa Sorin, which is slightly easier to pronounce than the other one, so thank you EQ for that. Once Walin Sakai, for his 41st birthday on New Year's Eve, EQ engaged in a bit of street theater by going in the street carrying this long wooden sword. And when people asked him why he was doing this, his reply was, today's Zen priests may be compared to wooden swords. If seen inside of a room, they may seem to be real. But outdoors, unsheathed in the sunlight, nothing but split bamboo. Such priests and wooden swords are no good for fighting or for anything else. So rather than delivering some serious sermon, EQ figured that entertainment was a better way to pass on his messages. You know, good old Marshall McLuhan once said, anyone who tries to make a distinction between education and entertainment doesn't know the first thing about either. And EQ clearly was on to this same concept a few centuries earlier. Just for the sake of placing EQ's life within a larger context, forgive me if I take a break from the details of EQ's own life and go on a bit of a tangent about events that greatly affected politics in Japan at this time. During all of the 1430s, the title of Shogun, the military ruler of Japan, had belonged to Ashikaga Yoshinori, the sixth member of the Ashikaga clan to become Shogun. Yoshinori had been a Buddhist monk and ended up becoming Shogun only when his brother, who had been the previous ruler, died without having any direct successor. Apparently, though, being a Buddhist monk had done nothing to mellow out Yoshinori's nasty nature. As a ruler, he proved himself to be truly a horrible human being. You know, to give you an example, he had multiple chefs executed for not serving food to his taste, and basically killed a whole bunch of people for trivial reasons. As author Donald Keane writes, when the heads of his enemies were sent to the capital, he personally inspected them to satisfy himself that the heads were not those of imposters. His unpredictable outburst of violence created a climate of terror at court, so that all the nobles scared of getting killed tried to outdo each other in fake displays of love and devotion to him. But as it often happens with tyrants, you can only push people around for so long before someone decides to remove you from the gene pool. A certain aristocrat named Akamatsu Mitsusuke was mad with Yoshinori for multiple reasons. Was mad because uh, Yoshinori wanted to give some of Mitsusuke's lands to a male lover of his, who was a rival for Akamatsu family leadership. Was mad because, to make things worse, Mitsusuke's sister was a concubine of Yoshinori, who apparently enjoyed having sex with both men and women. However, Yoshinori surprise surprise got mad with her and had her executed now yoshinori giving in to rage and ordering someone's murder was admittedly not a shocker but akamatsu mitsusuke didn't appreciate that this happened to his sister 
So in 1441, he decided to throw Yoshinori a party with a twist. Members of the Akamatsu clan invited Yoshinori to celebrate his triumph over the rebellious Yuki clan. The triumph, by the way, included the killing of two boys of 12 and 10 years old who were in line to inherit the Yuki leadership positions. So at the party celebrating the murder of these two kids, the shogun and some of his men were given drinks and treated to a no-theater performance. As the afternoon gave way to the evening, the performance was interrupted when some horses bolted from the stables and so Akamatsu servants scrambled running to close the gates, supposedly to stop the horses from fleeing. In reality, what was really going on was that the horses had been let loose intentionally and the gates were being locked not to stop the horses, but to prevent the shogun and his men from fleeing when a bunch of armed men arrived and killed most of the shogun's attendants. Two of the men grabbed Yoshinori himself and pinned him down on a tatami, as a third man, Azumi Yukihide, cut his head off. Akamatsu Mitsusuke had been pretending to be insane for the sake of avoiding having to meet with the shogun. He probably had not trusted his poker face if meeting in person a man he despised. But now that the deed was done, he showed up and it became clear that he was the mastermind after he ordered the shogun's head to be placed on a pike. Fully understanding that you don't get to place a shogun's head on a pike without some kind of repercussion, Mitsusuke fled the city and began preparations for war. Part of the preparations involved convincing a member of the Ashikaga family, a Zen priest named Yoshitaka, to become a rival claimant to the shogun status. The official shogun status had fallen into the lap of Yoshinori's seven-year-old son, Yoshikatsu, who automatically had become his successor. For at least for a while, the government army was really slow in going after Mitsusuke, who many people praised for having killed a tyrant. Also, considering that the shogun was barely old enough to have learned how to clean his own butt, someone else was handling the affairs for him, specifically a certain Ozokawa Mochiyuki, who asked the emperor to write an edict condemning the assassination. His rationale was that this would provide some moral leadership to his otherwise divided army. When the two sides finally met in battle, the Akamatsu forces didn't do too well, and they lost quite a few engagements. Mitsusuke made a last stand at Kinoyama Castle, and since things did not go well there either, he told his son and younger brother to escape while he committed seppuku along with 50 of his retainers. In case you're wondering what seppuku is, that's probably because you missed out the series I did about the 47 Ronin, since I spent more time than you ever thought you would be willing to listen to discussing the ins and outs of cutting your stomach and spilling your guts out in an act of ritual suicide. So if you want to fix that, check out the 47 Ronin episodes. Azumi, the guy who had uh, cut off the shogun's head, and apparently a stickler for setting himself apart from the crowd even when it came to killing himself, 
didn't commit seppuku, but instead set fire to the keep and then jumped into the flames. Right around the same time, groups of peasants organized an uprising asking for cancellation of debts. In an act that is sure to horrify those two who imagine the samurai to be quicker to embrace death than to displease their masters, a whole bunch of samurai joined the peasants rather than remaining loyal to their lords. The peasants attack uh, saki breweries and temples. Now, why those two places, you might wonder? Because saki brewers and temples were big in the money lending business. There were huge profits in saki brewing, so they usually reinvested them in money lending. At this time, the shogun had few troops in the capital because of the war against the Akamatsu, so the uprising couldn't be squashed as quickly as customary. As a result of this, a few regions began issuing cancellation of debts. Uh, the peasants also blockaded entry to the capital, so no food was coming in from the outside. And Based on his writing, it's pretty clear that Ikkyu supported the rebels. In a poem entitled Cancel All Debts, Ikkyu wrote, Robbers never strike at the homes of the poor. Private wealth does not benefit the rest of the nation. Calamity has its source in the accumulated riches of a few. And in another passage he wrote, over and over, taking and taking from this village. Starve the farmers, and then how will you live? So realizing that the shogun wasn't doing anything about it, store owners started hiring private bodyguards to protect their stores. And as the situation was quickly getting out of hand, the shogun took a break from playing with pastels and agreed to issue cancellation of debts. For the first time in Japanese history, the government bowed down, like essentially they gave in, you know, they just agreed to the peasant demands. Perhaps as a way to feel better about themselves, the shogun's men brought the head of the Akamatsu rebels to the capital, where the seven-year-old shogun was expected to examine them. He may have been eight or nine by then, I haven't kept track of the time frame. But still, you know, they bring you a bunch of heads, and safe to say this was probably traumatic. I mean, imagine you're seven or eight or nine years old, you barely know your head from your butt, and you're supposed to examine a bunch of smelly, probably grotesquely decomposed, severed human heads. Can't quite imagine a scenario in which this would have a positive impact on the poor fella's psychological development. The heads, by the way, were later paraded through town and nailed to the prison gate. The Yamana clan had been the main one defeating the killers of the shogun, and the Osokawa had also been enforcing the shogun's will. So clearly we can expect these two most powerful clans to join together in happy celebration, congratulating each other on their success, right? Eh, not quite. Actually, the rivalry between these two families, who were both very loyal to the Shogun, but they were rival, the rivalry is what a few years later will lead to a catastrophic conflict known as the Onin War. But before we get to the Onin War and the effect it will have on Ikkyu's life, let's tackle a key moment in the ever-complicated relationship that Ikkyu had with the Zen establishment. 
EQ was grossed out by the hypocrisy of Zen priests preaching a stern morality and rigid rules while running Zen temples as businesses. They were more concerned with profits from money lending, sake brewing and selling certificates of enlightenment than with Zen itself. The way he saw it, life in Zen temples had come to be exactly what great masters like Lin Chi had preached against. Certain sites just turned his stomach. Priests fussing over expensive wooden chairs imported from Min China for the sake of the prestige of their abbots, or young apprentices rushing to place a mat on the ground where the priests were about to kneel in order to avoid having their very expensive robes touching the tile floor. So EQ wasn't shy about calling all of this stuff a travesty. In his poetry, he regularly challenged the Zen establishment, accusing them of being fakes and presenting himself as the real thing. In one of them, uh, by the way, I should mention this before I read this, uh, the term Rinzai um, is the same, is the Japanese version of the name Linchi or Linji, which was the name of this uh, Zen master from China, uh, who then became, um, became also the name of the lineage to which one of the major Zen lineages in Japan was named after, after this master. So when you hear Rinzai or Linchi, it's the same thing. Here EQ writes, Who among Rinzai's descendants really transmits his Zen? It is concealed in this blind donkey, straw sandals and a bamboo staff and unfettered life. You can have your fancy chairs, meditation platforms and fame and fortune Zen. So, again, just to clarify a couple of things, beside the Rinzai thing that I mentioned, the odd reference to a blind donkey is tied to something that Lin Chi or Rinzai, however you want to call him, had written, saying that his teachings would be carried on by a blind donkey. So the point being, Ikkyo often scolded rich and powerful Zen institutions and the priests living in them. So he was presenting himself as what I'm doing is the real deal and what you guys are doing is just sad. As a result, it's likely that more than a few Kyoto priests wish that the conspiracy that had kicked this man from the palace had actually drowned there and an unborn kid instead. They tried to dismiss him as crazy, but the fact remained that his constant critiques stung them. As we have already established, Ikki was not a big fan of the folks running the Zen show, and if you recall from part one, he particularly disliked Yoso, the very square disciple of his own teacher Kazo, and the man who was now running the monastery of Daitokuji. Which brings us to the incident that took place between the two of them in the early 1440s. It was the anniversary of their teacher's death, and in the previous months, Ikkyo had raised money to build a sub-temple in Kaso's memory. Because of this, somebody at Daitokuji asked him to become the head of a sub-temple on the very same grounds. Probably this was wanted by Yoso, who was looking to bring back Ikkyo within the fold of mainstream Zen. So maybe they could be friends after all. Under pressure from some of his disciples, Ikkyo uncharacteristically accepted he was about 46 years old, maybe middle-aged, mellowed him out. 
or maybe his disciples had talked him into it. Either way, he was willing to give it a try. He moved in about a week before the ceremony for the anniversary of Casa's death, and then the day of the ceremony and the celebratory banquet arrived. He also had invited some wealthy patrons to solicit donations. Much in the fashion of people who throw around their money as a way to feel important and stroke their egos, these guys behaved terribly. But he also was all cozy with them, because hey, money's money. If they want a little legal stroking, why not? Just about when EQ was reaching his boiling point, it became clear that the guests expected to receive certificates of enlightenment from Yoso himself in exchange for their donations. And worse of all, Yoso was willing to go along with this charade. And with that, EQ's effort to mend fences with the Zen establishment was officially over. He got up and left, followed by his disciples Bokusai and a couple of others. He also probably figured Ikki was having a fit, but would eventually get over it. However, some of Yosu's guys came back to tell him they had found a poem that Ikki had placed on a wall as a parting gesture. The poem was an unambiguous literary substitute for a raised middle finger. It read, After ten days in this temple, my mind is spinning. Between my legs the red thread stretches and stretches. If you wish to find me in the future, you better look for me in a fish shop, a sake parlor, or a brothel. Now, that's a Zen distract right there. You know, priests who are forbidden to eat fish, get drunk, and have sex, so Ikkyu saying he would much rather hang out in sake parlors, brothels, or fish shops rather than a temple, and you are more likely to find authentic Zen there. That was scandalous. According to some interpretations, by the way, the red thread he mentioned in the poem is the red thread of passion, which Buddhist priests are supposed to overcome, but that Ikkyu instead happily embraced. And in case the message wasn't clear enough already, in another poem Ikkyu wrote, stilted koans and convoluted answers are all that the monks have, forever pandering to officials and rich patrons. Good friends of the Dharma, so proud, but a brothel girl in a gold brocade as you beat by a mile. So here in, again, unambiguous terms, EQ was telling Yoso and friends that prostitutes may have a bad social rap, but they tend to be more honest and straightforward than priests, which kind of echoes the words supposedly spoken by Jesus to the priest when he told them that prostitutes were much worthier than they were, of experiencing God's kingdom. To EQ, he also was a charlatan, selling Zen to the highest bidder while hiding behind a facade of respectability. As author John Covell writes, EQ became increasingly a free individual and felt that institutionalized monasteries were a farce. And so with that, EQ put his traveling cheap raincoat back on along with his straw hat and straw sandals, and left the temple. I kind of picture him whistling Willie Nelson on the road again on his way out. For the next few years, he returned to his wandering ways, earning the scorn of the more successful priests 
and the love of the common people who appreciated that he enjoyed the same pleasures they did without casting any kind of negative judgment on them. But besides becoming a popular icon due to his challenges against hypocritical forms of authority and his appreciation for sex and drinking, the thing that people loved him for was his generosity, his humor, his uh, radically honest approach about enjoying life, and yet a well-earned reputation as someone who never took advantage of anybody. He always taught for free and made friends with people from all walks of life without discriminating. About four years later, in 1447, Ikyu found himself oddly in an uneasy alliance with his nemesis Yoso. Don't get me wrong, they still hated each other, but on at least one issue they found common ground. Already in 1444, the uber-powerful Osokawa family had wanted to appoint as chief abbot of Daitokuji a priest from a different temple, despite the opposition of pretty much everyone at Daitokuji. This was part of a larger political scheme since this other temple was under the Ozokawa influence while Daitokuji was more connected with the emperor. Apparently the opposition to this move had been strong enough that the Ozokawa intervened with an iron hand trying to squash any sort of dissent by having a few monks arrested. This tug of war was still going on in 1447 and to draw attention to the Osokawa abuses, despite his rocky relationship with Daitokuji, Ikyu chose to hike up to a retreat in the mountains and go on a hunger strike. Shortly after he arrived, a typhoon came rolling in from the ocean. Despite this, news of Ikyu's hunger strike traveled fast and reached the court. The emperor at this time was go. Uh, oh God, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. Go Hanazono? Hanazono? No idea. In any case, the very same one Hikyu had recommended years earlier to be nominated for the throne. Perhaps feeling he owed something to Hikyu, the emperor sent an emissary with the message If the revered monk persists in this, the Buddha's way and the imperial way will perish. How can the master cast us aside like this? How can the master desert his country at this time of need? Which was a flowery way of saying, please don't starve yourself to death, it would seriously bum me out. So Ikyo agreed to interrupt his fast and in a very ironic twist the emperor engaged in a complicated diplomatic dance with the Osokawa and the result was the Yoso of anybody, he also was the one to be made chief abbot. And considering Ikyu's notorious sense of humor, he probably found it funny that his intervention actually benefited his nemesis. Just a few years later, when the temple of Daitokuji was damaged by fire, which may have happened naturally or it could have been an act of revenge by the Osokawa family, he also directed the rebuilding efforts which earned him a prestigious honorific title by the emperor much to Ikyu's disgust. By his late fifties, Ikyu had begun to slow down on his wanderings and settled down in Kyoto in a personal hermitage given to him by a member of the imperial family. Ikyu called it 
the hat of the blind donkey, which if you recall again, the blind donkey was the reference to Chinese master Lin Chi's poetry, indicating his lineage would be carried on by a metaphorical blind donkey. This next phase of Ikkyu's life is inevitably linked to the greater historical context in which he lived. Things were getting really dark in Kyoto, and Ikkyu's mood was not immune to this. In the 1450s and 1460s, the shogun demonstrated himself unresponsive to the bouts of famine that were happening with alarming frequency. Between 1459 and 1462, the perfect storm generated by a series of droughts followed by flooding and locust invasions created mass starvation. 82,000 died in Kyoto during the first eight months of 1461. Things got so bad that the Kamo River in the capital ended up completely clogged with unburied dead bodies. Episodes of cannibalism were reported. And in the midst of all this, Shogun Yoshimasa was too busy planning a palace for himself to be bothered to address the crisis. Had they had social media in the 1400s, Yoshimasa would have posted uh, thoughts and prayers and be done with it. Which is basically what he did, minus the social media part. He just asked Buddhist temples to pray and bury the dead. Some of Ikkyu's writings from this period are skating critiques of the shogun's lack of action. Even before 1461, as things were getting darker around the nation, Ikkyu had penned a work entitled Skeletons to explain his view of death to a larger audience since so many were being negatively impacted by death in this period. Reading Skeletons, you kind of get the sense that Ikkyu was not having the best time of his life. Rather than his characteristic exuberant zest for life vibe, in this work, Ikkyu expresses the classic Buddhist view of life as nothing but a dream lacking real substance. Also, while he was in his 60s, he wrote a booklet called Self-Criticisms, in which he put on display all the crankiness that had been boiling up inside of him as of late, largely created by the frustration he felt witnessing dramatic events that he felt powerless to change. Which, you know, you can be as Buddhist as you want and try to have non-attachment, but that's a hard thing to be in. You know, when you see things going in a horrible direction and no matter how hard you try, nothing you do seems to steer them, that hurts. And even though this booklet was uh, f- very far from EQ's best work or the most inspiring, if nothing else we can appreciate is some willingness to hide this obvious failings in his ability to handle things at this time in his life. To make his mood even worse, some people began claiming that they had received a certificate of enlightenment from EQ who hated such things. So annoyed with this, he actually temporarily abandoned Zen in order to make the forged certificates useless. His 60s were definitely not his best decades. And in many ways this is not unusual, you know, getting old is rarely a barrel of monkeys. But whereas most normal human beings enter a phase of steady decline, despite the temporary crankiness, Ikkyu still had a couple of faces up his sleeves. 
The first step to lift himself out of his semi-depressed state and feeling a need to do something positive in an otherwise negative social context. He began encouraging an artistic renaissance by pushing the many artists, musicians, poets and painters who hanged around him to create visions of beauty. Throughout the years, in fact, despite not running a formal monastery, Ikkyo had attracted a sizable number of people who looked up to him for guidance and teachings. His reputation as a master calligrapher and poet also helped in this. And so between sweaty sessions of mind-altering sex and epic sake-drinking bouts, Ikkyo managed to find the time to shape the cultural history of Japan by influencing such fields as tea ceremony, theater, calligraphy, poetry, and painting. Since his students were some of the most accomplished practitioners of these disciplines in this era. In Ikkyu's own words, all this was accomplished while, I quote, tasting life and enjoying sex to the fullest. Ikkyu's group of renegade artists would end up being among the key figures launching a renaissance of Japanese culture during these very hard times. The development of tea ceremony, for example, can be traced directly back to Ikkyu's disciples. Before this time, tea-drinking events were more excuses for gambling than ceremony. Ikkyu inspired his disciple Murata Shuko to mix Zen ideals with tea-drinking and create a new type of ceremony. What used to be little more than aristocratic parties with wine and communal bathing would become a silent religious experience. Together, Ikkyo and Shuku turned tea drinking into a vehicle for passing Zen ideas to as many people as possible, you know, a true example of Zen in action and a way to literally taste Zen in daily life. The same thing can be said about some other fields. As author John Covell wrote, thus the so-called traditional arts of Japan all felt his influence. Tea, ceramics, drama, rock gardening, and haiku poetry. No historian was keeping track of this cultural movement with TQ as the axis of a vortex. But with hindsight, one can see how deeply Japanese medieval art forms are indebted to him. Ikkyu's goal was to instill Zen in art forms that would be better conduits for Zen to the average Japanese than dry verbal doctrine. In keeping with Zen ideals, Ikkyu felt people learned better from experience than they do from words. Ordinary actions like drinking tea could become sacred if approached with proper mindset. In promoting this, Ikkyu was reminding his friends that spirituality is nothing but daily life lived with full awareness. But let's bounce back again from the events of Ikkyu's life to the larger historical context. Something happened in the 1460s that was going to dramatically alter the history of Japan and turn into the first spark in a long period of civil war throughout the country what would become known as the Sengoku Jidai, also known as the Age of Warring States. As powerful daimyos, daimyos were like the feudal lord of Japanese history, as powerful daimyos would battle for control over Japan for nearly a century and a half after this. It all began 
as trouble often begins with aristocratic systems of government, with a ruling couple unable to produce a male heir. The origin of a zillion wars throughout history. The couple in question in this case was made of the shogun Yoshimasa and his wife Hino Tomiko. In order to make sense of what's about to happen in our tale, let's give you a little background about these folks. Yoshimasa had married Tomiko in an arranged marriage when they were respectively 20 years old and 15 years old. Didn't really take very long for the teenage Tomiko to gain a reputation for being greedy and power-hungry. Partially because of her, Yoshimasa got rid of the woman who had raised him and who may have also been his mistress. Weird and possibly gross, but yes, there's that. Tomiko blamed this woman when her firstborn had died right after birth, accusing her rival of witchcraft. So Yoshimasa ordered this lady to be banished. Four days later, she was dead. Most reports say she found out she would be killed, so she committed seppuku. Others say that Tomiko sent assassins after her. In an interesting twist, it said that Tomiko afterwards was terrorized by the woman's ghost, so she built shrines for her worship in order to placate her spirit. Don't know if it worked or not, but in any case. Ikkyo, by the way, wrote several poems against Tomiko, accusing her of being a source of the many problems leading to the conflict we're about to witness in our tale. Now, clearly, publicly criticizing someone who had a reputation for having her enemies whacked was a bold move showing Ikkyo wasn't afraid to challenge authority. The shogun Yoshimasa had a reputation that was barely better than his wife's. He had no talent for being a military leader or for ruling in general. He was just big on spending money he did not have and loving the arts. By the 1860s, Yoshimasa wanted to resign so as not to have to deal with even the pretense of doing something for the people, but the problem was he had no sons. So he convinced his monk brother Yoshimi to take on the role as the shogun. Now, initially, Yoshimi didn't want to do it because he was happy as a monk, didn't care to be shogun, and also didn't want to accept in case later his brother would end up having a son. Yoshimasa, however, swore that even if he had a son, he would put him in a Buddhist order and the son would not be the next in line for the position. So, reassured by this, Yoshimi agreed to become shogun. In a perfect case of horrible timing, Right after this, in 1465, Tomiko gave birth to a baby boy. Which was a bit of a problem since now we had two people who could claim the right to the position of shogun. Now that she finally had a son, Tomiko got mad about the current arrangement, so she asked Yamana Sozen, the most powerful daimyo in the country, to protect her son and advance his claim. In a great Game of Thrones, that are the power games of aristocratic families. Susan realized that the powerful lord Osokawa Katsumoto, who incidentally was his son-in-law, was a big supporter of Yoshimi. So Susan and Katsumoto have been in conflict in the past about supporting opposite candidates for succession to become the heads of two other major aristocratic families. So as a result, because of the rivalry between the Yamana and Osokawa clans, 
he agreed to support Omiko and her son Yoshihisa against the partisans of Yoshimasa's brother for the title of Shogun. In a nutshell, this was the origin of what would become the Onin War, which would rage between 1467 and 1477. Before this conflict, Kyoto had been a marvelous city. After ten years of urban fighting, Kyoto would be left as little more than a pile of smoldering ruins. Now, Yoshimasa sided with the Osokawa on this, and he would have been okay with keeping his sword and with his own brother becoming shogun. But his wife Tomiko supported the Yamana, and her son claimed to the throne. So the resulting indecision opened the door to both Osokawa and Yamana gathering armies of about 80,000 people within Kyoto. Commenting on this, the author of Oninki, written some time after the conflict, wrote, The fault lay with his lordship, the shogun Yoshimasa. Instead of entrusting the affairs of the country to his worthy ministers, Yoshimasa governed solely by the wishes of some ignorant wives and nuns, as Lady Tomiko, Lady Shikego, and Katsuga no Tsubone. Yet these women did not know the difference between right and wrong and were ignorant of public office and the ways of government. Orders were given freely from the muddle of drinking parties and lustful pleasure-seeking. Bribery was freely dispensed. So, Yamana Sozen received the help of the warlord Ouchi Masahiro, who brought 20,000 more soldiers to a city that was already crawling with troops. So it doesn't take a genius to figure out what happens next. You know, you have two giant armies ready for action in Kyoto. And all it took was one spark to start the war. In this case, the spark was a literal spark. You know, when a Hosokawa mansion was set on fire, the Hosokawa correctly interpreted it as an act of aggression. So they retaliated, and the Onin War was officially on its way. One of Ikyu's poems on what he witnessed reads, One burst of flame, and the capital, palace, palaces and many mansions, turns before one's eyes into a wasteland. The ruins, more desolate by the day, remind me of autumn. Spring breezes, peach and plum blossoms, soon become dark. What's crazy about the brutal urban fighting that followed is that the two armies were basically staring at each other the whole time. You know, the distance from the Osokawa and the Yamana mansions could be walked within a few minutes. And the never-ending street battles over the next ten years would wreck the city as troops from both sides looted and burned. The dead began piling on the roads by the thousands as starvation and plague the twin demons that usually walk along with war, showed up to inflate the death toll. Since most of the soldiers in Kyoto were too busy killing each other to pay attention to anything else, rebellions broke out in many provinces. During the early stages of the war, as corpses piled in the street, the war reached Ikyu directly, as troops burned down the part of Kyoto in which he lived, and where he had been living for the past few years. So in quite a hurry he had to abandon his house of the blind donkey before the flames reached it, and left the city 
at the time when pretty much anyone who could get out did. He moved to the village of Takigi, where he created the, what he called the Thank You Hermitage, the thank you in the name being a sign of gratitude for having survived hell in Kyoto. But even this was only temporary, since the war would eventually reach there as well and he would have to move again. During the war, the shogun whose indecision had caused all this drama spent more time composing poetry than handling the situation. As author Donald Keane wrote, the most unusual feature of the war as it developed was the almost total lack of involvement by the shogun and the emperor in a war that destroyed the city of Kyoto, where both remained during the ten years of warfare. The most shogun Yoshimasa did was complain. He wrote, The daimyo do as they please and do not follow orders. That means there can be no government. Which is kind of funny because solving problems like these and keeping the daimyos in check was pretty much his job description. But instead of doing his job, he spent the war in his garden, admiring his collection of Chinese paintings. And his general lack of ability slash interest in influencing the war made the office of Shogun nearly irrelevant for quite a while. As Donald Keane continues about Yoshimasa, his extravagance, his incompetence in dealing with state business, and his inability to succor the people in times of famine or to end the meaningless on in war are deplored quite properly. It's little consolation that after the war Yoshimasa broke up with his wife and had a pretty bad relationship with his son, and Yoshimasa chose to become a monk. You know, maybe that was just a way to get out of the responsibilities because he wasn't really particularly devout. Either way, as I said, not a big consolation to the countless people who died in a conflict that had been set in motion by his weakness. The only upside, if you really want to look for silver linings at all costs, was the spreading of cultural art forms to other parts of the country, when all the top artists, poets, painters who had lived in Kyoto fled the capital. So in this sense, the Onin War led to many previously barely literate warlords to becoming much more interested in the arts. The war, however, was a disaster for everyone involved. After 10 years of brutal fighting, 90% of Kyoto was destroyed, and yet there was no clear victor, just a lot of losers. The war ended because both sides were too weak to continue by then. The main players largely wiped each other out. Most of the main houses in the war would be irrelevant a generation later, and their infighting created a power vacuum. As a result of the war, the bureaucracy collapsed, the shogun lost power, and government was completely decentralized, which in turn allows the rise of powerful warlords whose rivalries will make much blood flow for the next century and enough. The age of warring states had begun. It would take countless civil wars until a series of three warlords would manage to defeat all rivals and bring a state of relative peace back to Japan. Perhaps I'll tell you this tale another time and dedicate a whole series to it, since guys like Oda Nobunaga are not exactly characters that you want to gloss over.
So we have a story of an old DQ fleeing war and living out his last few years as a refugee under depressing conditions? Not quite. He could have turned away. His 60s have been hard on him, and usually things don't get easier as someone ages. But things did happen in Ikkyu's life that turned quite a positive turn. All his previous love affairs had been with women whose names are largely lost to history. Now that he was in his 70s, we could expect his love life to be winding down. After all, he even had referred to some struggle with impotence in some of his poems. It's entirely possible that his bad moods were partially caused by his declining ability to have sex, or maybe it was the other way around. Either way, the odds were high that things would not improve. But IQ was not an ordinary guy, and this is not an ordinary story. During his 70s, IQ caught a second wind, and this would open possibly the best time he had ever had in his life. The greatest love story of his existence was about to begin, and it would sweep away all the crankiness and negativity that had surfaced in the previous decade. The love of his life was named Mori, also known as Lady Sheen, as he would refer to her in the many poems he would write about her. She was way, 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 way younger than Ikkyu. In some versions she was as young as 25, in others she was in her early 40s, but either way she was many decades younger than Ikkyu. She was beautiful, talented, and completely blind. She made a living as a musician, playing the harp and singing, and sometimes serving as an attendant in temples. Now, even though we don't know the details, it's safe to say that life for a female blind musician touring the countryside at a time of war is probably not easy. The two of them originally met in 1468, after Ikkyu had fled Kyoto, when she visited the temple where he was staying. Ikkyu was infatuated, but nothing happened. Probably the age gap was enough of an ambition for him to think that there would be no realistic chance for a romance with her. After their initial meeting, she moved to Osaka, so it looked like that would be the end of that infatuation. However, Ikkyu missed her terribly, so in 1471 his emotions overcame his rational objections, and he decided to travel to see her. I mean, what did he have to lose? Ikkyu wrote that nothing had happened when they had first met, but, I quote, In the spring of 1471, we met again at Yakushido, and she admitted her feelings toward me, and came to me. Therefore I have composed poems to ask why she hid her love in her heart for so long, since now, so suddenly, she has brought me unexpected happiness. Ikkyu would later say that before meeting her he was... I quote, like an old leafless tree, but she had changed his life and made him feel like he was young again. As he put it, the tree was barren of leaves, but you brought a new spring. Long green sprouts, verdant flowers, fresh promise. Mori, if I ever forget my profound gratitude to you, let me burn in hell forever. And in another piece of writing, Leisurely and happily I made a trip to visit the Yakushido, 
scandalous desires still remaining in my innermost being. Now shamelessly I forget my snow-frosted hair, chanting through this winter's cold. I will let autumn linger for a long time. There was clearly no getting around the giant age gap between the two of them. But being blind, Mori clearly wasn't bothered by his wrinkles. Just his voice and energy mattered. And certainly there was gossiping about the weirdness of a love story between two people so far away in years from one another. But Ikkyo had spent all his life caring little for the opinion of others, and Mori seemed to match him in that department. They flat out did not care what anyone else thought. And once she came into his life, impotence apparently was no longer a problem for Ikkyo's, because in some of his rather explicit writings, he writes, My hand is no match for that of Mori. She's the unrivaled master of love play. When my jade stalk wheels, she can make it sprout. How we enjoy our intimate little circle. Now, let me warn you, okay, this warning may be coming a little too late by now, but his writings about her are neither shy nor subtle, both in terms of his feelings for her and in terms of their sexual life. Remember I told you at the beginning of this series that this was not for you if you are uncomfortable with sexual explicit stuff? Well, the stuff I told you so far was the PG version. Check out some of these lines. What I was talking about were lines like Once, while she was cooking, I kneeled, put my head between her warm dark legs, upper skirt, kissed and licked and sucked until she came. Or in another one White-haired priest in his eighties, Ikkyu still sings aloud each night, to himself, to the sky, the clouds, because she gave herself freely, her hands, her mouth, her breast, her long moist eyes. Or yet again, and the nights inside you, rocking, smelling the odor of your thighs, that's everything. And we're not done, so one more. Plum blossom close to the ground, her dark place opens wet with the dew of her passion, wet with the lust of my tongue. I think you get the picture, so I won't go into the many, many, many more pieces of writings with a similar vibe. I'll give you just one more that's a little more sentimental and slightly less graphic. Every night, blind Mori accompanies me in song. Under the covers, two mandarin ducks whisper to each other. Mandarin ducks, by the way, is a term used to indicate fidelity since they mate for life and die of grief when the mate dies. EQ continues, we promise to be together forever, but right now this old fellow enjoys an eternal spring. Night after night, we two lovebirds snuggle on the meditation platform, lost in dalliance, intimate talk and orgasmic bliss. Their love story is one of the most celebrated in Japanese history. And to fully understand how wild their affair was, we should remember that back then the Japanese culture of the time put women on a much lower status than men. Add to this that some branches of Buddhism believed that women had to be reborn as men before they could reach enlightenment. 
and to make it even more scandalous, it was weird since monks were not supposed to be in love. Zen preached non-attachment, whereas Ikki was both super attached to her and in love. As author John Covell writes, Ikki's honest joy, as it spilled out through his poems, should be silhouetted against his century and the feudal framework in which he lived wherein women were merely biological necessities or conveniences. No contemporary Japanese woman ever received such joyous recognition from a man. The way Ikkyu worshipped Mori was completely unusual. Consider that never before had a Zen master included a lover in an official portrait. And of course Ikkyu brought that tradition by requesting to be painted with Mori something no one had ever dared to do before and nobody did since. Ikkyo had clearly been a player for his whole life and he never made mysteries of it, but now he was 110% in love with this one woman. Now, of course, despite the incredibly happy times they shared together, all around them Japan was going up in flames and they weren't immune to the chaos surrounding them. Some scholars believe that at one point wartime scarcities left them with nearly no food, and Mori stopped eating altogether just to save up the little that they had in order to keep Ikkyo alive. We don't know the details, but their luck must have turned though, because apparently they were able to get more and get by. The weird trajectory of Ikkyo's life continued, not just in his love life, but in other aspects as well. As the Onin War was coming to an end, Daitokuji, the main imperial temple that Ikkyu had stormed out of decades earlier, was no more. It had burned to the ground along with most of the other temples in the city, the Imperial Palace, as well as the Ashikaga Family's Palace, the Osokawa Temple, and for that matter most of the city itself. In an effort to save the main center for Zen throughout the nation, the emperor had appointed various disciples of Yozo as chief abbots, but they all lacked the ability to lead the complex rebuilding project. The emperor was just flat out out of money, so he couldn't help. You know, to tell you how bad he was, it is said that the emperor had to sell his calligraphy and court paraphernalia just to buy rice. As John Covell writes, only a miracle could save Daitokuji. The miracle of course, was Ikkyu. So the next emperor, the guy who was emperor at this time, asked Ikkyu to become chief abbot at Daitokuji when he was 81 years old, which of course meant he would have to figure out a way to rebuild the temple since the temple didn't really exist. Ikkyu, of course, could refuse, and he probably have lots of reasons for it. His relationship with the monastery had been ugly, he clearly, however, had some kind of emotional attachment to it as it's betrayed by the fact that when he had left Kyoto, Ikkyu had saved the calligraphy of the founder, Daito Kokishi, and brought it with him. But still, you know, he had spent his whole life criticizing priests and temples. So why would he take it? Kovel continues, Ikkyu surely realized that his appointment represented the reigning emperor's last hope. If he were to reject this otherwise empty honor, if he didn't manage to revive Daitokuji, 
it might totally disappear from history. This fate had overtaken other, once prosperous temples. The imperial family could do nothing on its own. The aged priest surely saw the humor involved in the situation of being offered a title to a monastery that existed in name only, actually just a memory. War was still going on. The next year, E.Q. was to order his own tomb built at Xuan Han, so already he realized that his death lay not far distant. Should he use what energy he had possessed to re-erect a Zen center, which he had repeatedly criticized in his poetry as decadent? Did he owe any duty to the throne which had destroyed his mother's happiness so ruthlessly? And the thing is, even for some reason he chose to accept, how could he possibly pull it off at a time when building anything in Kyoto was next to impossible? Ikyu thought about it for a whole month, and then he accepted. Again, we turn to Covell. He, who had always loved humor, entered wholeheartedly into the funniest predicament of his life. Having verbally chastised Daitokuji and its leaders for with thousands of words for many decades, now Ikyu was turning his verbal powers into rebuilding those golden holes which he had scoffed at in his poetry. Now, of course, Zen is by its very nature built on paradoxes, but this is really a good one. Ikyu had been an outsider all his life, and now he was the head of the kind of institution he had despised and criticized for his whole existence. He had hated mainstream Zen precisely because he loved what Zen could be and hated what talentless people had turned it into. Which sort of reminds me of my relationship with academia, but that's a whole different story. It's likely that EQ appreciated the joke of it all. You know, EQ was probably both amused and maybe a bit grumpy by the notion of becoming chief abbot. In a line from a poem about the inaugural ceremony, when he had to wear the purple robe that the emperor had given him for the occasion, he wrote, For fifty years I've worn only a straw raincoat and a straw hat. I am ashamed to become today a purple-robed priest. It is said that when his teacher Kazu had been close to death, he had said, perhaps prophetically, when the true tradition of Rinzai is lost, you must retrieve it. You are my disciple. Treasure these words and ponder them in your heart. Maybe EQ felt some responsibility to his old teacher. Uh, whatever the cause, just when the future of Zen seemed in peril, he was able to enlist the help of the many acquaintances he had met during a lifetime of travels, in particular his merchant friends from Sakai, um, among them one of his best friends, Owa Sorin, whom we mentioned earlier. The free port of Sakai had remained relatively untouched by the Onin War, and that's where Owa lived. He donated the masts from his vessels to support the high roof of the Doctrine Hall, which Ikyu wanted to rebuild first. Another Sakai merchant gave Ikyu money to rebuild the living quarters of the temple. At the end of the Onin War, in the countryside, private armies and bandits controlled the road. And each local barons set up customs and barriers, making it difficult to move goods around. 
but one of Ikkyu's four older disciples was the nephew of the Asakura daimyo. Their feudal strength was far in the north, in the mountain interlands full of great forests. So the Asakura, who loved Ikkyu, ordered their retainers to cut a few trees and float them down to Kyoto via sea and river. And with that, Ikkyu pulled off the impossible and finished rebuilding when he was 86 years old. So oddly enough, much of modern Zen owes a huge debt of, for its existence to a man who preferred the company of sex workers to that of monks. Now, Ikkyu was truly getting to the end of an incredibly wild life. We turn to John Covell one more time. From his last testament, it is clear that Ikkyu had come to realize that few could possibly really follow him. He might have many disciples, but they would largely be in name only. Few could really walk in his footsteps. In his farewell message to his disciples, E.Q. wrote, After my death, some of you will seclude yourself in the forest and mountains to meditate, while others may drink sake and enjoy the company of women. Both kinds of Zen are fine, but if you become professional clerics blabbing about Zen as the way, they are my enemies. That's classic you savagely unorthodox until the end. Speaking of sex and drunkenness as well as meditation in the mountains as two valid forms of Zen, as opposed to the empty theology of professional priests. Toward the end of 1481, he fell into a sickness from which he would not recover. The last thing he wrote was for Mori. It read, a poem written on departing from this world. Ten years ago, under the flowers, I began a fragrant alliance. Each step was elegant delight, endless affection. I do regret to seize pillowing my head on this woman's lap. In the midst of the night, her cloud rain. I vow eternity with her. His work done, E.Q. died in 1481 at 87 years old. Maurice survived him and went on living for many years afterwards, likely with some help from E.Q.'s most loyal friends. In the centuries after his death, a whole corpus of legends grew around him, making it next to impossible to separate fact from fiction. Some of these legends became particularly popular during the Tokugawa period. And in some ways, the legends tell us much about him, even when they are not technically true. Because they aim to capture Ikkyu's spirit and embellish his biography with fictional but plausible tales for the joys of fans of those who love this unique brand of zest for life. Sonia Arntzen writes, it is always difficult when describing famous figures of the past to distinguish between the man and the myth about the man. With TQ this is no easy task, especially since Tokugawa writers energetically created an elaborate myth for Ikkyu, by which is generally known in Japan today. The mythical Ikkyu is a light-hearted, carefree fellow, exceptionally clever and witty as a child, 
an evangelistic savior of courtesan souls as a monk, in general a joyful fish-eating, sake-drinking, love-making, prank-playing Zen prelate. Which from the sound of it isn't exactly far off from the real thing. Probably my all-time favorite of these EQ stories goes something like this. EQ once boarded a ferry on his way to Sakai. On the same boat was a Yamabushi from a rival Buddhist sect, who saw Ikyu's Zen robes, smirked, and said something along the lines of Zen. Ha! What is Zen good for? Look at the kind of miracles I've learned from my teacher. I'd like to see your Zen match this. And with that, the Yamabushi began to pray, and in a seemingly magical way conjured up the image of one of the esoteric Buddhist deities surrounded by flames. This left all the other passengers speechless. When the Yamabushi looked at Ikkyu with smug satisfaction, inviting him to match his miracle, Ikkyu pulled down his pants and pissed all over the flames until they were extinguished. Did that really happen? Probably not. But that's EQ spirit right there. In another famous tale that has become the subject of many paintings, EQ supposedly once visited a brothel where he met a sex worker named the Hell Courtesan, who supposedly achieved enlightenment after studying with him. But let's not get lost in the many Tokugawa legends about EQ. Before we wrap up, there are a couple of crucial important points I want to address. Ikkyu is still considered by many today as a legendary folk hero. At a temple in Kyoto for 500 years, fresh flower arrangements have been placed next to his life-size wooden image, along with offerings of tea and food. Most Japanese people probably know him as the star of a popular cartoon TV series about the adventures of Ikkyu as a witty, mischievous child, navigating his way among rigid rules and strict monks. Why still so famous 500 years later? Maybe because of his joyful individualism, which represented a breath of fresh air in a culture heavy with Confucian doctrines and repressed emotions. Modern writers have grappled with the question. Lucien Strick argued that Ikkyu's appeal rests in his, I quote, always spitting in the face of orthodoxy, madly carrying on, as the freest of the free. Donald Keane wrote, Readers today can only rejoice that someone who lived five centuries ago communicated his passion with such intensity that we probably know him better than any Japanese poet who ever chose the kanshi as his medium of expression. And Stephen Berg chimed in, saying, what are we, centuries, words away from Ikkyu, to make of his extraordinary life? It is his total freedom that makes him such an appealing figure. What is wrong about delighting in the body its natural needs, or what authority is sex condemnable? If one avoids giving pain, if one abides by what is virtually Buddhism's golden rule to live inoffensively, then why not live passionately? This may all be true, but for me, there's something else as well. 
which is at the core of what made me want to do this series in the first place. Life can be monstrously tough. I don't think I'm telling you guys anything new. Sickness, heartbreak, the inevitable decline of old age, failure and death stoke us all. We live in a universe in which everything we love gets to be taken away from us sooner or later. Our very existential conditions dictate that every single human will deal with heavy suffering. Ikki was no stranger to life's harsh side. He was disowned by his father before he was even born, was separated from his mother by the time he was five, lived through a period of famine, floods, and civil war, so 90% of his hometown burned to the ground and thousands of people die all around him. And yet, in what is possibly my favorite line from Ikkyo, he wrote, even if I go to hell, I'll find a way to enjoy it. Even if I go to hell, I'll find a way to enjoy it. Eric is not promoting some kind of delusional form of positive thinking. He's not willfully blind to about how brutal life can be. He's definitely not writing some trite self-help book about here are the seven steps to avoid suffering. He knows that hell, whether a psychological hell or the hell of horrible material conditions all around us, such as what he witnessed during the Onin War, he knows that hell is never far away and can knock on the door at any minute. In that sense, hell is inescapable. There's no denying that. But what he's doing is denying hell power over his consciousness as much as he possibly can. What he's saying is, in spite of it all, I will find a way to say yes to life. As one of his disciples said of him, joy in the midst of suffering is the mark of EQ school. EQ consciously chose playfulness as a way to keep finding beauty, even when existence turns unkind. Anyone can whine about bad luck, and maybe they are right, maybe their lives are truly terrible and painful. But endlessly lamenting never solved anything. Being able to stare at tragedy in the face and still finding the strength to laugh is an art and I most definitely bow to anyone who can master it. To me, that's what real spiritual depth is all about. And in this department, I really cannot think of too many role models better than EQ.
thank you so much for listening. Now we have gone through 46 episodes. Hopefully you have been through all of them. If not, check them out, download the old ones. Because in April things are going to change, as I mentioned in the introduction. History on Fire is going to go on Luminary, which is a new app that will operate as a subscription service. 13 episodes per year are going to be exclusive to Luminary. So it's just for subscribers. And subscription is going to be $8 per month to have access to History on Fire as well as a bunch of other podcasts that are exclusive to them. However, two more episodes per year will be released to everybody. So those of you guys who decide not to follow me there, you will still you can still get some material that will pop up about every six months or so. So next one up is probably gonna be about five or six months from now. If on the other end you decide to that you do wanna follow me on Luminary, sweet, there's going to be a whole bunch of episodes coming up very soon. Having said that, let's say thank you to some of the people who have sponsored this episode. I want to say a big thank you to Team Evolve Recruitment. These guys are fans of the podcast and they have been sweet enough to sponsor this episode and the next one. Team Evolve is a nationwide recruiting team located in Southern California that focuses on building up startups in various industries and they have clients working on bleeding-edge technology in the fields of cybersecurity, renewable energy, autonomous vehicles, advanced robotics, deep and machine learning, virtual reality, and much more. They have clients and candidates all over the US and Canada. So wherever you are in the Northern Hemisphere, they have elite candidates and companies you want to see. Whether you are a startup or a talented engineer or a recruiter looking to join a rapidly growing team of recruitment professionals, if you're looking for a personal touch to show you your next opportunity or an elite eye in your next hire, reach out to the team at www.teamevolving.com. Again, that's teamevolving.com. I have a funny story about the next sponsor I want to mention. Uh, the sponsor is Magellan TV, and these guys are a new type of documentary streaming provider. So they bring uh, some of the best documentaries from around the globe on one service. Now, here is where the story gets weird. Is I got this request and I checked them out and they look very legit, so I was like, yeah, sure, I can. we can set up a sponsorship. But then, of course, I started looking really deep into it and I started watching the documentaries. And I'm so short on time right now, I'm trying to keep up with the release schedule, make sure I get all my research done and everything. But once I started looking at the documentaries they have, needless to say, I got lost in a black hole of watching documentary after documentary, because they have so much incredible stuff. They have, well, needless to say, since it catches my interest, a very wide range of history documentaries available. I watch a whole bunch about Queen Elizabeth, fascinating figure, by the way, who gave me some ideas for future episodes. I watch about Tokugawa Japan and what led to the creation of the Tokugawa dynasty. I watch, there's so much good stuff, and there's a lot more that I want to check out. They're not just about history, they also have nature documentaries, science, space, you name it, lots of other things. So if you do dig documentaries, check them out. They are really good. The whole service has been built by documentary filmmakers. 
and I really really dig them I cannot recommend them enough I know I'm going to it's gonna be a struggle to stay focused on my work and not get sidetracking watching them all because there's so much good stuff they are now compatible with Roku, iOS, Android, a whole bunch of other things, so they have the ability to cast on some of the most popular streaming devices. You can watch anytime, on your television, laptop, mobile device, you name it, so you can start your free trial today at MagellanTV.com forward slash History on Fire. And seriously, trying it for free with the kind of documentaries they have? I mean, even if you decide that you don't want to sign up later on, try it for free. Just give it a shot, try them out. It's MagellanTV.com forward slash History on Fire. I also want to give a big shout out to the sponsors who have been with me since day one. Onnit.com has an insane array of products from clothing to supplements to workout gear. I use their stuff every day. If you can do me a huge favor and just check them out, and you know, if you don't find anything that's useful to your life, well, just as simple as that, don't buy it. But my guess is that you may find items that are really, really useful. Uh, Alpha Brain is their flagship supplement. It works like a charm, especially the, um, the powder version. I really like that one a lot. So with that in mind, check out their website. The link is in the episode notes. Or you can go directly and check them out at onnit.com forward slash history. Again, onnit.com forward slash history and receive an automatic 10% discount. The coupon code history is also good at dsgear.com for all of their hemp gear from bags to clothing to martial arts uniforms and all sorts of other goodies. And while I'm at it, shout out to Never Tap Gear for sponsoring Savannah Riem, editor and resident muse and million other things for this podcast, the artist who provide the images for History on Fire as well. And speaking of art, they produce this beautiful rush guard featuring Savannah's art regarding Tomoe Godzen, the female samurai. It's an insanely beautiful rush guard, so if you train in jiu-jitsu or you use that kind of clothing, you may want to check out Never Tap Gear. And with all that, thank you so very much for listening today, for listening all the previous months, the last three plus years. I really deeply appreciate the support from each and every one of you. So thank you so much, and have a wonderful day.